The two most important words in movies today are Billy Wilder. Those are words from Alfred Hitchcock after seeing Double Indemnity. Welcome to Seeing Faces in Movies, a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer. And each week, I invite a guest on to discuss a film and the artist's filmography. Today, we're discussing Billy Wilder's 1944 film, Double Indemnity. A quick synopsis on the film. A Los Angeles insurance representative lets an alluring housewife seduce him into a scheme of insurance fraud and murder that arouses the suspicion of his colleague, an insurance investigator. The film stars Fred McMurray as Walter Neff, Barbara Stanwyck as Phyllis Dietrichson, and Edward G. Robinson as Burton Keyes. It's written by Billy Wilder and Raymond Chandler from the novel by James M. Kane, cinematography by John F. Seitz, editor Dwayne Harrison, and music by Miklos Rosa. So today I have Aaron Strand with me. Aaron and I met through the Royal Film Club, and he also runs his own podcast, which I'll let him talk to you about. But I was very excited to have Aaron on today. I'd like to think of him as a seasoned podcaster. Thank you for joining me today. I'd love to hear about what you do and what your relationship is to cinema and to Billy Wilder in this film. Oh my gosh. Well, I, I am, I'm so thrilled to be here, Felicia. Thank you so much for inviting me. When you joined the film club relatively recently, it was just such a, just a, such a wonderful addition. I think of myself as a film guy, you know, like in, in like the circles I run in, like, like people think of me that way. You are on another level. The films that you, like the amount of films that you have seen is truly shocking to me. You released your like top films of the year on your Instagram. And I literally had seen like three of the like hundred titles you listed or something like that. I'm over here taking notes of what Felicia's doing. I, I mean, it's truly staggering. So I mean, you are you are a degenerate cinephile in the in the greatest sense of the word, and I absolutely love it. And as a fellow cinephile parent, I I relate a lot, and I just love to think of the two of us, you know, kind of like cramming in these movies like after our kids go to bed. So anyway, like Felicia said, I run a, a podcast called Behind the Slate. It's a film history podcast where I talk about the lives of cinema's greatest directors and do these big historical deep dive biographies where we kind of examine the social context that both developed them as individuals and then influenced their work. Uh, right now, we have finished series about Charlie Chaplin and Melvin Van Peebles uh, that are up now. And then right now in the show, we're doing something a little bit different because I am also a filmmaker and I am in pre-production on my first feature film. So we've sort of shifted the podcast for this specific period for me to tell the story of of my own DIY film project and try to be as transparent and inclusive as possible uh, as both an inspirational and educational and, and entertainment tool to take people inside of what it's like to make a micro-budget film today. And then we'll get back to the historical stuff once I'm not overburdened with film work. But, you know, that's where we're at right no, now. No, that's amazing. Just before we get into your relationship to Billy Wilder, uh, I'd highly recommend the podcast and I've learned so much and you put in so much work and effort into it and I really admire it so highly recommend whether you're fans of those directors or if you're looking to get into those directors and their film work it's just a great stepping point 
Nice. Yeah. It's been, it's been wonderful for me. Cause like, I, like, I don't know a lot of this stuff before I start researching. I literally thought the Melvin Van Peebles series was going to be like one episode, you know, uh, we'll hit, we'll hit the highlights and like move on. And then it was like, Oh no, this is a huge story. Uh, so yeah, I hope, I hope that other people get to go on that journey with, you. uh, now to answer your question about Billy Wilder, Billy Wilder is one of my absolute favorite directs. I mean, he's like, I'm going to say top three, although I don't know who the other two are off the top of my head. The man is is the epitome of X. When you told me that you were going to be focusing on him for this first month, it was just like, oh, yes, start this off with a bang. Yeah, I'm so excited. I When I was starting this podcast and I'm trying to figure out, okay, who do I first want to focus on? I want to focus on someone that's accessible, but also someone who just, you know, has just banger after banger. And immediately there was like, no, no question is Billy Wilder. It's just like going back and rewatching and we'll get into it, but rewatching some of the films and you realize, wow, these are even better than like you remembered it because I don't know how long it had been since you'd seen last scene, Double Indemnity. For me, it had been a while and I just was blown away all over again. Yeah, I think that's the thing about his work kind of across the board is just how well it holds up, how well it holds up in the modern context. He's so ahead of his time and yet also incredibly applicable to his time period, which is, which is just so amazing he was able to do that. And then, like you said, it holds up to the rewatches over these movies are endlessly watchable. You know, look, I think first of all, his humor, like his sort of flourishes are excellent. They are very pleasing for what kind of, they kind of meet you like wherever, whatever mood you're in. His attention to the depth of the character relationships and his intrinsic knowledge of story craft is like the bones of these movies are so good. It's kind of impossible not to be drawn into them. Double Indemnity let me just say, so like, I love Billy Wilder, but Double Indemnity is my favorite of his movies. It's in, it's got to be in my, you know, I don't have like a top five, top 10, uh, mm-hmm. but this would be up there. This is an absolute extraordinary piece of art. Probably. I mean, I've seen this movie probably more than almost any other movie. I last oh, wow. watched it in like probably just a couple of years ago, 2021. I probably watch it about once a year. Every time it, I'm just drawn deeper and deeper into the dark depths of this story. In my film school, especially your first early years, they kind of section off by week, different genres or different eras. When it came to the film noir week, this is what they showed us. I'd seen it one other time after. I was wondering, hey, how is this going to hold up? Even though I never wanted to doubt, you know, Billy Wilder. But I watched it again a few days ago and I was like, this is insane. <laughs> like, I don't know how to describe it. I'm sure it'll come out as we're discussing it. But this film, there's like, there's not a single bad, you know, scene frame in this film for me. Uh, and it's it's the film that got me into film noir, which is my favorite genre. Okay, so let's get into discussing the actual film. And what I like to do is read the tagline. In my first episode, I did mention how I just find taglines to be so much fun, especially from this era of film. And this one's a very short and sweet and overly dramatic. So the tagline is, it's love and murder at first sight, all in caps. Isn't that great? Uh, yes, yeah. It's just straight to the point. No information about the film. 
the thing I love most about that tagline is how unwitty it is. And I feel like a lot of taglines around this time is unwitty. But it makes me think of this piece of trivia about the movie that David O. Selznick was promoting some film in like trade magazines. Oh, what was the name of the film? It was uh, uh, Since You Went Away. Since You Went Away. Right. And so he publishes these ads that say the four greatest words since Gone with the Wind. And so Billy Wilder published his own ad. Uh, that said the two greatest words since of cinema since Broken Blossoms, the, the D.W. Griffith movie, just to like stick it to him. And apparently David O'Sullivan got like super mad about it and like stopped printing his ads in the ad, in the papers that uh, ran Billy Wilder's ad or something like that. Ridiculous. No, I think that's hilarious. And it's so petty, but I, I live for it. <laughs> they don't do things like that. That that petty like trolling part of Billy Wilder is is kind of really fun because he he does it because now I'm like thinking about it and it's like would Billy Wilder just be a Twitter bro like today would he be like a Twitter director and he might be but I also think he would kind of quickly see like I don't think he would like lean in he would see it for the at least maybe this is just what I want to believe <laughs> I think so too I feel like he definitely would utilize Twitter maybe in a less annoying way than a full-on film bro yeah yeah but maybe i'm also just hoping for the best (laughs) i I think we can i think we can i mean because like that that is the thing about him is that like he was incredibly hard hitting and like could it was very pointed but there's just nothing about him that's trashy you know what i mean it's not like there's just not a trashy or indulgent kind of bone in his body and that goes for his art as well as his sort of witty personality just reading about him through the research for this month i'm learning so much more and i have just a better you know admiration for him yeah. a-, a few things about this one here his usual writing partner partner was charles brackett and they didn't write this one together because brackett disagreed with turning this real life crime but he didn't want to endorse such a horrendous crime so he refused to write it with wilder and he ended up writing it with raymond chandler because james m kane was busy working on a fritz lang film at the time so he couldn't get him to write him so partnered up with raymond chandler and they hated each other raymond chandler just hated you know wilder's lifestyle because he was kind of like a playboy he'd always have women calling him chandler was kind of you know a very straight-laced dude who's married. He's been married for a long time. He wanted to write and he wanted to go home. And he especially wanted to just write on his own. He'd never written a screenplay before. And he said, I'll do it. And I only want $1,000, but I want to do it alone. <laughs> so the first draft that he sent in, Wilder and Paramount read it and they were like, no, you need to work with Wilder. So work <laughs> with them and we'll give you $2,000 a week to do it. And he's like, okay. But they still hated each other. It didn't really have any effect on the final product. So sometimes a little conflict works. Totally. I mean, well, I just want to like add a little bit about that because I I came to this movie as a Raymond Chandler fan. Oh, yeah. So Chandler was married, but he had had a long-standing affair with a woman that was much older than him. And that was like the real love of his life. And he was they were devoted to each other. And they each had spouses that um, they were kind of separated from. So he was devoted to this woman, but his mother did not approve. Kind of a mama's boy. Chandler was also a severe, severe alcoholic. 
And he was not a writer until the age of 44 when he was fired as an oil exec for his alcoholism, not being able to hold down a job. And in his alcoholic aftermath, that's when he first started writing credible detective stories that ultimately led to the series starring Philip Marlowe. And what I find so fascinating about this is that he was trying to get sober when he was approached about the script. He was only like a few months sober and he was going to Alcoholics Anonymous, which for the record was only 11 years old at the time. You know what I mean? It was a still oh, wow. a very, it was a very new thing that was happening. And he, as almost all alcoholics are, you know, he was kind of, he just wasn't too sure about it. Um, you know, and he like didn't, he was, he's a, he's a consummate loner. He doesn't want to be a part of the group. I'm sure he had all sorts of qualms about the faith-based language that's in AA. And yeah. so his brain was just like squirming, you know what I mean? As they're like starting to work on this. And then because because of the stress of the film and because he's an alcoholic, he, he starts drinking again. Yes. I didn't know that much about the, the background. So that's great. I just knew that he was an alcoholic and he did start drinking again on the production or the writing of this film, which is unfortunate. Yeah. The story is based on a real life crime of a couple who were cheating on each other or with each other. And devised a plot to murder the woman's husband. And it just was so poorly done. They were caught not long after that. And they were both sentenced to death. This film does have an alternate ending where Walter Ness is sentenced to death. And it was screened, but it went over so poorly that they went with the ending that we have. The ending where he's sentenced to death has just been stored away in Paramount's vaults and has not been screened since. The last bit of fun trivia that I have was uh, a woman tried to sue Paramount, citing that the film used her phone number and she was receiving like endless calls from fans of the film. As they were investigating, it, they discovered that she had bought the specific number like two weeks after the film was released. So the case was dismissed because they were like, oh, you're just trying to take money. <laughs> oh my God. So those are my facts about the making of and thank you for the background on Raymond Chandler. That's really interesting. I haven't really read too much of his stuff, but I've seen a lot of adaptations, obviously, of his his novels. So I'm interested to find out more. Yeah, the the books are are fantastic. I think that what makes this script so extraordinary is the books have a certain wandering quality to them. The Coen brothers famously wrote The Big Lebowski as like, oh, it's like a it's a comedy, but like a rambling Raymond Chandler mystery. So all the all of his books are these sort of convoluted mysteries that take place across 1940s Los Angeles. They don't have a really tight structure. And that's the synergy in this movie that just sparkles and crackles because you have Chandler who just has some of the best dialogue ever written with Wilder's incredible storycraft and commitment to these narrative beats. And when you fuse the two together, this story is so perfect. And it is like a turning of a screw. And every scene cranks the screw deeper and deeper into the wood. There is there is not a wasted beat. There is not a wasted second. There is not a wasted line that doesn't increase the pressure and the tension of the situation. And that is such an achievement of screencraft. And it's all present in the screen. I, I agree. And that's a good segue into the first point I wanted to cover just how tight the script is like with all Billy Wilder's scripts 
and and again, you're getting a director who's not just directing. He also writes his own material that he's directing. That extra added layer. There's a reason why if you go and study script writing in school or wherever, if you're doing it on your own, Billy Wilder's up there. You want to be studying his scripts. One of the comments made by a Paramount executive as the script was being shown to the studio was that all characters in B pictures are too smart. So that's a quote from Joe Sistrom. He was discussing on how quickly Walter Neff decides to commit the crime. I remember the first time I watched it, I also kind of felt that he switched very quickly. But on the second watch, you can see the minute he sees her, things are turning in his head. And I think he was always in the back of his mind that I could do this. I have the tools to do it. I'm in the inside. But what's so beautiful about this, you don't even have to suspend your disbelief to believe that he would do that. Oh man. So I have I have like a lot of thoughts about this particular dynamic. First of all, there's a wonderful element of set design. But it's a Billy Wilder quote, if you're gonna be subtle, be obvious about it, I think. And there's an element of set design that is so wonderful. It's in Walter's apartment. And if you look at the art that he has on the wall, he has all these paintings of boxers, these boxers in these fighting poses. You get the sense that this man is there is a latent violence to him, a a brooding fascination with violence that gets suppressed under his salesman persona that he has to take on. And he reveals later that his entire time selling insurance, he has been secretly thinking about this, that he's been thinking about how he could game the system. And so I think it's it's totally earned. I buy it every step of the way because we, we reveal that he's actually, that he actually is this person. He's already fantasizing about. He's already already walking toward it before Phyllis ever comes into his life, which I think is really interesting. And then, of course, what they do so well is, and this is, I I, now I haven't read the, the James and Kane novel, so I can't really speak to this, but from my understanding is that they heightened the relationship with Barton Keyes, his boss, and what he, they add this wonderful, tragic element, which is when Keyes is offering Neff the opportunity to become his protege as the claims investigator, right? And you realize that if Walter Neff could just have channeled this dark fascination into solving other people's claim fraud, you know, that would have been such a beautiful channel. But unfortunately, he's already on the tracks heading in the other direction. So you get this tragic pain of what could have been, and it's standing right there in front of him. I was reading that the Barton Keys character was more of a minimal back character in the novel. But then you bring in someone like one played by Edward G. Robinson, who's fantastic. And and does such a great job at being the voice of reason. And you never question that he's a good guy who genuinely cares about his job and just wants to do the right thing. But he also cares so much about Walter. And he really does, as you said, give him an out. Even without knowing what he was doing, he gives him that out. And Walter just is like, I'd rather not. The other layer on that is that there's a pay cut. And he clearly just wants the thrill of having more money and the woman as he says in the end he doesn't get either yeah and i will say like this is my one of my overall like takes of the film is that the reason why this film works and why we stay invested in walter as he goes down this dark road and just does terrible things is at the core of it the reason why the story works is because it is a love story it, it is a platonic male love story between walter and keys that's the last line of the movie he looks at keys he says i love you too it's about the boring fringe loving friendship between 
between two men that work together and how that's just not enough for Walter caught in this web of capitalistic addiction and this disease of of needing more than what his boring normal life just is. On surface level, you think it's about him and Phyllis, but it's really not. As you said, it's about Barton and Walter. Just to see how it's not even, it's kind of a paternal relationship but they're also, you know, Keyes likes to treat him as he's on the same level or wants to get him on the same level. And it's beautiful to watch. And it's dark to see how he strays. And even to the last minute, you know, Keyes is just so hurt by the actions and he feels so betrayed by that. Yeah, you know, Keyes defines himself as this man who's like able to solve all these insurance fraud scams. And this is the one that was like, he was too close to like, he couldn't see that the murderer was right by his side the whole time. But the fact that like, when he realizes it at the end, and he's been listening to Walter's confession, he doesn't make it about him, right? You know, Walter's like, Walter's obsessed with this notion of like, you didn't see this one coming keys, like I outsmarted you, right? Like, Walter's like caught in this world of competition. And keys just is like, well, you can't win them all, Walter. You know what I mean? He says it so just simply and tragically and really cared about him. And, and I, I can't remember, I'm trying to think now, of if Keyes is married or he has somebody at home. I'm not sure. It might be. Do you remember? No, he's not. He said that he was very close one day, but then he discovered some stuff about her family and her. And right. He, right. Yeah. Abandoned right, that. Right, 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 right. So then it gets into this other issue that is like so pertinent and so real, which is about like aging male friendships and like, this fear of like aging male relationships. And here you have two single men and this, you know, this kind of like touches a live wire on the other side, which is that like so many of the noir, like femme fatale archetypes, I feel, you know, are born out of this uh, 1940s anxiety about the upward mobility of women. And I'm sure we'll like get into mm-hmm. that, but just on the male side of things, you know, I think it's, it, it's just really fascinating that underneath the surface of this sordid murder plot is actually this like very tender story about two lonely men coming so close to like having a real bond together and like Walter's selfishness just like fucks it up. We will get into the way of Barbara Stanwyck's character. But before that, I did want to just quickly touch upon Fred McMurray himself. Personally, this is the first McMurray film I'd seen. I had just always seen him as being this kind of hard-edged noir type of guy. As the years rolled by being like, oh no, he was more of a comedian. And it's so funny when you see Double Indemnity first and you see him being silly in another film, but he does it so well. The reason why Wilder wanted him was because he just was kind of just a regular American dude. You know, he was believable as being a salesman and he just kind of looked like a regular guy he wasn't particularly gorgeous or anything he just was very relatable and i love his performance in this i love the era of the like thick male lead you know what i mean like like fred mcmurray and like and and (laughs) sterling hayden you know they just don't make them like that anymore I'm I'm a huge Stanwyck fan. I think she's just phenomenal, and she does no wrong in my eyes. I, I'll let you say what you want to say, and we'll we'll okay, vibe this, off each other. But I I love I love 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 her. Extraordinary. The blend of strength and intelligence 
that radiates off of her is such a rare combination. And with her in particular, there is a certain scrap there is a certain scrappiness that comes from lived experience that is just so absent from today's movies because most actors today uh, had to come from privilege in order to make it in the business. And of course, this gets into you know conversations about nepotism that are happening a lot. But beyond nepotism, it's just coming from money because you need the money to stay in the game long enough in order to get your break. And this is just from a different era. And this is a woman who worked her way up through the ranks. She was a Ziegfeld girl like at the age of 16. She knew how to use sex to her advantage but it's not like her beauty and her uh, and her sex appeal is not the thing that jumps off the screen and it, it, she is just she's just a, a dynamite dynamite performer i love everything about her i would cast her in a second of anything. I mean, <laughs> even if she wasn't right for the part, like you, she's just the type of person you can look at and you're just like, oh, you're going to bring something to this that no one else can do. And I also would cast her in anything. And I've seen a lot of her films and sometimes the film itself is not great, but she's always great. She's never given a bad performance and throughout all her years. And I like what you said about her kind of being a, a working woman getting into the film industry because you see that in someone like a Joan Crawford or a Betty Davis who are people who work their asses off to get where they were and you could see that there are people who have a work ethic and know what real life is outside of Hollywood which adds another layer to their performance and I think it shines through with Stanwyck and in this character her character is someone who you know she was a nurse (laughs) obviously not great at her job (laughs) But she got to where she needed to. Uh, and you can see that she, it's never not believable that she kind of comes from a lower rank in quotes and she's trying to make her way up. And you can see why money's important to everyone and some sort of level. And you can see that she's like, well, this is how I'm going to get it. And I'm just going to own up to it and I'm going to do it. And it's just so believable. But she has that charm where, at least I never fully hated her character because she's so watchable. I mean, there's so much there. I, I think, but that particular element of that, like, why are these people watchable? Why do we watch this movie? And why does this movie work better than other, you know, noir uh, murder, love type movies? Um, I'm thinking, you know, another James M. Cain novel of The Postman Always Rings Twice, or Body Heat, you know, a more modern adaptation, which I personally hate, or... Um, or something like uh, Detour, which is like uh, the poor man's version of Double Indemnity. And what is it about these two people that remain so relatable? And I think that it's thing about this movie is that it proves something that is proven on Bravo and E! Uh, like every night, which is that terrible people are capable of incredible passion. And these two actors apply their intelligence to the passions and that's what we are buying into. And so we we enjoy watching them do terrible things because we know or we feel in their performance that there is something more underneath it. 
again, it's just like the the layers to this film, the layers to this story are just they just go so deep. You just can't stop digging through them. But I think that's the thing that like that just blows me away about Stan. For sure, I was reading a quote from Billy Wilder saying that he wanted to make her look as sleazy as possible. She was worried about that and that affecting her career. And he asked her, "Are you a mouse or an actress?" And she's like, "Okay, fine, I'll get over it." <laughs> and it works. And she has a very interesting look. You know, your early blonde bombshell, but it's kind of she has like these weird little bangs. That are curled under, like, does kind of give her that mousy and sort of innocent but very sultry look that only someone like yeah. Stanwood could pull off because that the wig that they gave her to anyone else would look absolutely horrendous and foolish. So, again, it's just working with her confidence and what she can bring to that character because, as you said, she does have that sex appeal and her character is using it, but she's not oversexed. Yeah, it's it's funny about the like sex aspect because it's such a more erotic film than just to juxtapose it with Postman Always Rings Twice, where Lana Taylor is like so much more just a visually sexed object in the movie. Just don't really buy it. And she has like a very lovely like white jumpsuit that she comes in like in her in her like first scene in. Stanwick, it's a subtextual attraction. It's taking place underneath the words it's taking place uh subtly you see her 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 first appearance is she's wrapped in a towel because she's been sunbathing but that's the most we ever get now of course this is like code time so it's not like we're gonna like see a nipple or something but um that you know that's the most salacious thing Mm -hmm. i mean everything else is just anklets and eyes and 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 whatever and she pulls it off for sure i'm trying to think as you're talking about it if i can fully even remember any of the outfits she's wearing i can kind of but they're not remarkable enough to you know as you were saying with lana turner's like you remember certain things she's wearing because that's the point just to show off her body whereas with stanwick and her character she doesn't need to do that for you to understand why he immediately was willing to you know risk yeah, it all totally. for did her. I say Lana Taylor? Did I say Lana Taylor, by the way? I, I might have said Lana Taylor. Obviously, I meant Lana, Lana Turner. Another point that I did want to touch upon as we're talking about Stanwyck and McMurray, their dynamic, I I don't know what their dynamic was on set. I didn't read anything that negative. I assuming they got along. Whether they did or not, it comes across as though they did on screen because they have such great chemistry. And I love their first scene together and they're just bouncing off of each other so easily and that's the script but it's also just how seamless they were together and i love their dynamic you can see the attraction in his eyes right away great is that dialogue there's a speed limit in this state mr neff 45 miles an hour how fast was i going officer i'd say about 90 what do you say you come off that motorcycle and give me a ticket? <laughs> I mean, it's just like, oh, come on. And the last line, the last line when he he insinuates that he wants to come back and see her. And she says, I wonder what you mean. And he looks back at her and he says, I wonder if you wonder. Fuck me. That is such a fucking banger, dude. Like, oh, my God. It would be interesting to kind of just close your eyes and watch a Wilder film or listen to rather a Wilder film because the dialogue is so beautiful and it makes me ashamed for any writing I've done in the past because I wish I could just be so confident in the words and know that could come across as cheesy and it is a little bit but not really I think it's just so fun. 
what I love is that he reveals the intelligence of the characters because they're characters that enjoy language. They enjoy talking. They enjoy being witty. And that's the thing that I do think is lost in today's hyper-efficient, hyper-minimalist storytelling, when done well, can be, of course, be incredibly effective. And one of the things that is a sort of weird benefit of censorship is that we couldn't watch them titillate each other or whatever, uh, visually, so they have to excite each other with words. So you get these characters that they like talking. It tickles them. That's This is their foreplay, is through wit and language, which for the vast majority of human history was like how this stuff like took place. Any actor that's approached Shakespeare with any degree of, of training will tell you that words are still incredibly effective ways to get what you want. They're not just written for the sake of being written. They're being written to in pursuit of an objective. And these care and that's why you can get away with this kind of like quote unquote flowery language because it's not just for the sake of being flowery. It's it's has a purpose. Especially with what's going on and I assume, unfortunately, will still be going on when this does air with the writer's strike, just the importance of the written word and how it's not just there to be there to give people, you know, the actor something to say. We need those. That's the basis of the whole story. And especially when it comes to something with Billy Wilder film, there's a reason why he's the Billy Wilder that we all love and respect because of that written word and the understanding of how each word matters there. It is interesting that you get the confession right off the bat and just to see how well the story plays out what is every true crime show or every true crime podcast that you might listen to how does it start becky sue blah 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 was walking home one night and she disappeared her body was found in a creek right like it starts with the crime it starts with the murder and then you have to trace it back from there there's got to be a crime to hook us in the beginning. And what they do a brilliant job of is that they place the crime into the confession. And so he comes right off the top. We see that he's bleeding. We see that he's shot. We don't know why. We don't know what happened. He says he's just, he's committed a murder. It immediately just wraps the audience of like, well, why? Why? <laughs> we have to know. You know what I mean? It's just simple screencraft that hinges upon keeping the audience engaged and needing to know this what this happened and and it gets to the real real important thing about all film is is that the what happened is really not important and a, a, another thing that i think is certainly lacking in the blockbusters of today is that it's all about the what and it's not about the why the why is the important thing the why is why the story matters in the first fucking place. So, yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, Wilder just demonstrates an incredible grasp of this concept. No, I agree. Often you're watching a film and you get to the end and you're wondering, okay, but why did I need to watch the story? And you never question why with this film. One of the last points, really, that I wanted to bring up was the cinematography. Because this is a gorgeous looking film and it was done by John Seitz. Wilder had really respected him and loved his work ethic and just how he was down for anything and would watch, watch the rushes and see, okay, we need to switch this and that and was always down to make adjustments and make something that would complement the words. And you see that. What I always remember from this film, along with the script, is just how visually captivating it is and how it utilizes, you know, those 
classic noir shadows and blacks and whites. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Stunning film. Nothing particularly showy about it. Some great, uh, you know, I think there's some great choices. And I don't know if this was the cinematographer's choice or if it was Wilder's choice. Some excellent use of close-ups in the movie, which were... Uh, which are always so pointed of films in this era that were shot primarily in medium wides. My two favorites are, of course, when Phyllis goes to Walter's house and or to his apartment after he's like stormed out. And they this is when Walter, he's already told us in the voiceover that he knew that she was going to come back and that the hooks were in too deep and the ball was already rolling. And she comes back to his apartment. She comes to his apartment and apologizes and they kiss for the first time. And right after they kiss, he goes into the kitchen to get her a drink. Um, Whiskey, whiskey. Okay. She says, whiskey's fine. And they go in and he starts talking about other murder insurance fraud scams. And as he casually brings these up, they cut to a close-up of Phyllis's face and you see her eyes just like widen because she knows. I mean, she like, and that's what's so awesome about this movie is that for as talky as it is and as jam-packed and florid as the dialogue is, is that the real moments take place in the subtext. And that's a, that's a great one. The other favorite one is during the actual murder of Mr. Dietrichson, which is uh, 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 Phyllis is driving him to the train station. He has broken his ankle. So he's, uh, and he's in the passenger seat and Walter is hiding in the back seat. And he's going to, when, when Phyllis gives the signal, he's going to pop out and strangle Mr. Dietrichson. Spoiler alert. Sorry. Uh, um, anyway, so she honks the horn three times. Walter comes over the back and again, cut to a close up on Phyllis's face. And we see her get this like almost sexual erotic pleasure from the murder taking place just next to her. But this is like so smart as a storyteller. First of all, I don't think we should see Walter kill Mr. Dietrichson because it, it alienates us from Walter. We've got to like keep, we've, we're, we've got to stay rooting for Walter to get away with it somehow deep down in our darkest, nastiest parts of our souls. And Wilder knew this. And so he cuts to deep uh, to Phyllis. And um, on a deeper level, I think we, we, we get into this, you know, this, this, whether you want to call it sexual or not, this arousal that she gets from, from violence, from, from, from being bad, um, which is like, you know, a real thing that people experience. Like this is not just the making of movie, uh, of movie fantasy. No, I, I agree. That's definitely one of my favorite shots as well. And I love that we don't see him getting murdered and that it's quick. You can hear the struggle, but it is on her face. You basically took the words out of my mouth. It does make it so that you still are sickly rooting for him in the end because for me there's still a weird innocence about him even though he's very much so not innocent but you want him to maybe succeed is not the best word but you feel like you want to see him hopefully at least get the money after all this so it is important to not see him do the actual act of murder but there's another shot right after that that I really love which is when they're starting the car and it's not starting and there's just the stress 
and it's very silent. They're not really speaking and the stress in both of their faces. That's another scene where, you know, words weren't needed. It was just all in the direction of how they should be. And I was reading that McMurray just wanted to turn it a couple of times before it started. And Wilder kept saying, no, make it longer, make it longer. And they went back and forth on it. And it turns out that the longer was what they used. Oh, absolutely. A credible scene. And I don't know if you, if you know this little backstory behind it. So they shot it where they, they start the car and drive away and everyone, they were wrapped for the day and everyone was back in their the, the actors were back in their dressing rooms, getting their makeup taken off. The crew was breaking down the set. Wilder goes to his car to go home and he turns the key and his car won't start. And he thinks of this beat like, in the moment, he runs back and calls everyone back to the set and forces them to reshoot the whole thing. And now this is like this is like a movie trope of like the bad guys, like you know, they're after you do something bad, you know, your car won't start. I mean, it's because it's so brilliant. Um, but it was a, that was a totally impulsive uh, beat within the story, which I just love. I, I think that's amazing. And as you said, it is something that is used a lot now, but. The way it's done in this is even again on the rewatch, I knew what was going to happen, but I was also stressed because there is that moment where like, oh, this is going on for a little bit longer than you anticipated it going on for. That point of the film, it's almost more or less like a heist movie, right? Like we know the plan more or less. We are watching them just move through the plan. Walter is explaining the plan to us as we are watching it in voiceover, uh, you know, which he, which no writer should ever do, and, um, and so it's kind of a procedural at that moment. And so it's like, yes, we're invested in the plan, but it's not like other heist movies. And I'm not like a heist movie person, but even like the quote unquote excellent heist movies, like Rafifi or something like that. Even when the plan starts to go wrong, I don't really give a shit. I'm sort of just like, why? I don't know. I'm just watching it play out. The reason why I give a shit is because these two characters are so interwoven together. Like they're so like the sick, bizarre, codependent passion that they have developed. That's why I care. And when that car don't st- doesn't start, I'm just thinking, oh God. You know, I mean, it's like. Uh, it's just amazing. Exactly. I've been saying it's just a testament to the writing and that and the performances. There's a couple of things I want to I want to bring up. Okay, first because like this is what this is what I do on my show usually, and so I can't help but think about it. Is a little bit of the historical context of this movie, and so so first of all, you know, this is a movie that like under the Hayes Code, under the production code, you know, this was like not thought to pass that no one thought this was going to pass the censors and uh joe breen um passed it sort of like at the last possible moment they they weren't sure if they were going to get approval from the censor board and because of this lascivious murderous plot um very un-american um now of course what was happening in 1943, 1944? I don't know. Like, what you know, was there some big world event going on? So, like, we're we're recording this in uh, on July 5th. It premiered on July 3rd, 1944, which is also just like so funny in and of itself to think like, hey, honey, like Fourth of July weekend, you know, the boys are storming the beaches in France. Would you like to go see Double Indemnity? <laughs> um, you know, like like that's so funny to me. Um, but. What's uh, kind of amazing is that, like, 
the world was about to enter the deadliest year, uh, maybe in human history, maybe since um, uh, the Black Death uh, uh, spread across Europe, maybe maybe since the Mongol invasions. But I, I think more people died between this movie's premiere and the dropping of the bomb on Nagasaki than in any other time in history over like a 380 day span. Um, And so to think of this movie, which, which here's the other crazy thing is that, I don't know if you, you watch as you're watching modern films that particularly were made through COVID. I sometimes got really annoyed. It's like, why aren't these films like making COVID part of the story? You know, why are these films existing in an alternate universe? Well, it's pretty interesting that this film exists in an alternate universe. The war is not happening. There is no World War II happening in this movie. It's yeah. like, yeah, it's just a, it's an alternate timeline where Hitler didn't invade Poland, you know? And, and here we are getting fucking elbow deep in blood and sex and murder. And we're about to enter and it's somehow forecasting this year of devastation. You know what I mean? Like that, like that's so fascinating to me. Uh, Yeah, it is. And it's, I I also agree with some of the stuff that you hear different opinions on media that does acknowledge, you know, the pandemic that happened and ones that don't. And it's always interesting to watch something that was clearly set, you know, in 2020 or 2021 and no mention of it because it is its own in its own universe. And I do find it interesting when those are not ever mentioned and something like this, where you do often find films around that era where there is it, maybe it's not about the war or no one's attached to the war, but there will be a comment about, you know, what's going on overseas or people going over. Uh, this was the first time that I ever like put the dates together and was like, oh shit, like, <laughs> uh, that's kind of weird. Okay, I have another point that I want to bring up. Um, and this is just my opinion. And again, this was this is the first time I've seen this movie so many times. And this is the first time it ever popped into my head. Uh, look, to get a little personal, I'm going all into this into my own podcast. So it's not like this is not like a, a, a reveal or whatever. I, I've been a recovering drug addict for 10 years. Okay. So I, I got sober 10 years ago and I experienced addiction. Okay. And uh, knowing that Raymond Chandler was trying to get sober when this movie was written, um, it's the first time I ever thought about it. Cause when I was trying to get sober, uh, my brain was just like a live wire. And honestly, it was like going to really, really dark places. And so um, uh, that were, that were needing creative expression. And so I was thinking about that element and like, you know, his writing, like with the film. And this was another thing that I thought gave the film just this incredibly lived truth that is, is you wouldn't notice. I mean, I haven't noticed in 15 viewings or whatever. And I think that this is an addiction story. The way that Walter Neff, he feels this like this magnetic pull as if like he's been caught in the uh, gravitational field of the sun or the or a black hole and there's no escaping it he's just going to he's just going to keep falling it is like the pull that an addict feels towards drugs and alcohol and that that sense of just like there's nothing that he could think there's nothing that he could do there's nothing that he could say that would stop the process from happening and you know, and and I think that that is something that was like really happening in Chandler's life, and it 
found its way into this murder plot. And and when you kind of delve into the world of true crime and the way that killers, um, you know, can have these psychosexual attractions to violence, um, that is almost that is addictive. Uh, at least they describe it to be. And our, um, you know, psychologists that work on this stuff describe it as an addiction. Um, I just think it's just a, such an underrated element. I mean, I never thought of it before, but w- at watching it this time, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Like, holy shit, this is an addiction story. No, yeah, thanks for sharing that. I that's an, a very interesting take, and I would have to agree because as a part that I had mentioned, there was kind of that complaint that he turns very quickly and agrees to it very quickly. But if he's an addict, it's not quick. It's been sitting there and he's been like, you know, vying for it. And he needed that one little push to get him to it. And it just escalated so quickly. So that's a very apt comparison. And to some degree, she's an addict as well. You know, this is not her first time doing this. And it probably would not be the last, as they say. He assumed that she was going to get rid of him, the stepdaughter's boyfriend, and the stepdaughter. So it was just like an escalation for her. Hers is more apparent than his is, but his probably is the most important addiction on screen. You bring up a really important point here in in that... And I don't think we've ever really like in our discussion here, like we've never really like touched upon um, like this even being an option, but like the way people remember this movie and the way people remember the femme fatale archetype is evil woman who, dra- you know, who draws men into her trap. I mean, give me a fucking break, especially at least with this film. I mean, I think maybe like detour, you know, like, kind of throws that schlock under the screen. I love Detour, but like, come on, it's no double indemnity. This movie is about Walter Neff making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision. It is not about... Phyllis didn't make him do it. It's not about like him being drawn into her web. He had been fantasizing about this before he ever met Phyllis. Like, this is about a man making very bad decisions. (laughs) Um... It would be just about. It would just be such a wrong, just such a misreading, not feminist undertones. Because I, I think it would be really interesting to have a, a feminist sort of retake on this story, um, because you could also as just as much tell it from Phyllis's perspective, who is just surrounded by and yet also like plays a part in that she's like constantly kind of associating herself with just awful men. I mean, just terrible people. You know what I mean? And does she do it? Why does she do that? You know, where does that come from? Exactly. I actually would be interested to go back and read it through a a feminist lens. But for this story and the way it's presented, as you said, Walter is never forced into this because he did initially walk away, but he doesn't. You know, he makes that decision. And the way the scene that you were discussing when he goes into the kitchen and he's telling her how it can be done or how it's been done, he can't wait to tell her this. You know, he also kind of gets off on being like, look at all this information that I have. I know how to do it. You need me to do it. You will never be able to get away with this on your own. Yeah, I just love that aspect of the story. And it's so true. This is not about her, you know, trapping him. In a sense, maybe he kind of traps her into something he was wanting to do. And now he's using her. Yeah. And he doesn't, for me, especially on this watch, I never felt that he really cared about any money at all. Exactly. He's in it for the thrill. 
He's in it for and proving how smart he is and proving what a what a man he is. I mean, he's 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 living out a fantasy. Uh, yeah, it's not about the money at all. But like it, the, that's what and you bring up him trapping her. That is that that's what's so brilliant about it. He pushes for the double indemnity clause. He pushes that this murder has to take place or has to be staged on a train, which is like so infinitely more difficult. And yeah, the double indemnity clause is like somehow the proof of like that he's a master murderer, I guess, like in his uh, like like that puts a monetary value on that proof, but the real driving force is so clearly the proving he was right. I'm glad that you do bring up the clause. I, I meant to bring that up and what double indemnity actually means. They do get into it into the film, but I remember kind of forgetting why is this called double indemnity? And then they they do aptly <laughs> explain it in the film. But I remember that like on first watch, you don't fully remember that because there's so much going on. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, in the back half of the movie, Walter begins this relationship with Mr. Dietrichson's daughter, uh, Phyllis's stepdaughter lola this is a narratively i think that you know this is a source of redemption for walter because he's clearly trying to protect her um he doesn't want phyllis to kill her and he um he feels a sense of guilt i think his motives are out of guilt but my question to you is do you think that he's having a sexual relationship with lola which they obviously like couldn't show in the code uh era but what do you think? Like, like, do you do you see him as like a as like a particular like a gross, creepy man in this moment because he's hanging out with a teenager? Do you see him more as a protective father figure? Where? What do you think is that? I kind of read it as protective father. I think he acknowledges that she's attractive and he probably is attracted to her, but doesn't make any sort of move on her. He seems to have this guilt because of the way she talks about her father and he sees her as so innocent in this, you know, scheme of things of people who are not good, including her boyfriend. It might also be the way McMurray is playing him and why I'm not viewing it as sexual and maybe in a different time it would have been, but I kind of just view it as him, you know, wanting to protect and do some sort of good. I think that if he was... I want to. I kind of feel that if he was sexually pursuing her, or or if they had consummated some kind of sexual relationship, that um, hit like the evil part of him would have come out, and he would have like he would have been more scheming. He really seems to be sort of like protect, like trying to set her aside. Um, And you know, I think look, like yes, at first we're rooting for Walter to get like some part of us is rooting for us to get away with it, but then. I think what we're really rooting for is for Walter to do the right thing, is for him to like to come clean, not necessarily get his comeuppance, but we want to see him do the right thing. And he's getting really close with his relationship to Lola. And so that's what kind of keeps us on the hook, like yes. rooting for him. Um, what's really awesome, again, just like the way this movie just like fucking layers this over and over again. Another reason why we're rooting for him is because at the very beginning of the movie, he comes in and he's telling us his confession. So we know he's doing the right thing the whole time. You know, um, it kind of gets us on his side from the first frame, which is really cool as like just a storytelling trick. I mean, look, like should a, a 38-year-old insurance salesman who 
murdered a, her father be hanging out with a 16 year old girl like and taking her to the woods above the hollywood bowl no no <laughs> yeah i also i'd forgotten how young she was i knew she was young i think it's because you can see the guilt in his face right off the bat when yeah. you know she's telling the story about her boyfriend and her dad and he's starting to realize oh, I'm going to be murdering this girl's dad. And I kind of wish we never had this conversation because I would not feel as guilty. So you see it right before he does it. Uh, And then he's trying to, I guess, redeem himself by protecting her. And as you said, we know that he's trying to do the right thing from the right off the bat because we get that confession. And that's just that extra layer in the script and, and the story and as I mentioned, Charles Brackett, who was Wilder's usual writing partner, he didn't want to do it because he thought it was too dark. Audiences wouldn't want to see such evil people. Yeah, totally. And and it's not to be taken for granted. Because again, like many people compare this to Body Heat um, as a sort of like 80s adaptation of this story. And like, I just could not be less attracted or invested in watching those shitty Floridians commit this murder like they're so gross and so Florida and like like they probably smoke more cigarettes in double indemnity, but for some reason when I watch William Hurt and Body Heat, like I just smell like cigarettes and like cheap cologne and it just like it just <laughs> makes me want to vomit. Like <laughs> I, I mean, they do look pretty sweaty and gross in body heat, so you're not wrong. <laughs> At least they're they look clean in double indemnity. I don't know. Maybe it's just William Hurt's mustache. I don't even know why I didn't think of body heat. But yeah, I guess that that would be kind of a modern devil indemnity, but done so differently. I, I do like body heat, but devil indemnity is a lot tighter. If like this could be rendered in Greek drama, the the force that's pushing Walter forward would be the god. Yeah, it would it would probably be the gods, and then the chorus would like echo the gods' wishes, like pushing Walter to his fate, right? And you, you just don't get the same sort of like epic scale push and pull in in Body Heat or in a lot of these noirs, honestly, as much as I love the like quote unquote genre. Okay, I, okay, I have a question for you. So at the very end, the big finale, Walter goes to kill Phyllis because um, he's, he's getting off the train, right? Any, anytime two people commit a murder, they're on a train heading toward the graveyard. And there's no getting off. But now he's going to get off because he has another guy to replace him, Nino Zacchetti. And, but of course, Phyllis has other plans because she's got a, a gun hidden in her, her chair. Um, Walter goes over to like close the blinds because he's about to do it. And then she shoots him. Then she can't shoot him again. And she has this incredible moment where she says, like, I've never cared about anybody. You're right. Like, I don't care about anyone until this moment i don't he like questions her and then she says just shut up and hold me right (laughs) and like falls into his arms as the music swells okay like what do you think about this moment like do you think like is this real is this a is this a real last minute change of heart for phyllis dietrichson like do you think Mm -hmm. she actually felt that what do you think this is i don't think it's love i don't think she realizes that she loves him it's more so because it was so close in a sense of she's doing the physical act 
of shooting him to kill him because the previous murder that she did of Lola's mom was that she left the blinds or the the windows open and she got sick. So it was her body that kind of killed her herself. She didn't have to physically do it. In this moment, she shoots him. And I think it's a shock of being like, you're not someone that I hate. (laughs) You know, I like you enough that I do feel bad, but I don't think she really cares that she's killed him, if that makes any sense. I definitely don't think that she's decided that she loves him. It's more that she feels maybe bad that she had to come to that, that they couldn't just, you know, maybe succeed together. I don't think they would have stayed together forever, run off into the sunset. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm with you. I don't think it could be that she she loves him. I don't know. I think it's a really interesting... In some ways, it is the stereotypical Hollywood ending. And I mean, like, she literally, like, falls into his arms and says, like, shut up and hold me as the music swells, right? And it's just like... But it's somehow, like, inverted. And um, there's it's, there's a, this, this wilder twist to it, you know, that's just so delicious. Which is, yeah, when you stop and think about it, it's like, where is this coming from? I, I think... Um, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, she's never co- physically committed the act of murder. She's always, yeah, like opened a window or, or gotten a man to do it. I think it's, um, you know, maybe also that like she has been so hyper focused on upward mobility and the attainment of things, and this is the first act of violence that is not like that is not she can't really justify to herself in that way. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I want to believe that it's not love. I think she I think she's the type of person that through her circumstances she has steeled herself off from humanity and she like wants to believe that she's a sort of unfeeling sociopath like willing to do whatever it takes to get on top. I think that's the story she's told herself. And in this moment where she actually pulls the trigger and sees this man who she doesn't love but she has a relationship with actually bleed from something that she's done, it's oh shit like I'm not as badass as I told myself I was or something like that. You know what I mean? And that's where that softening, that vulnerability comes from. And it's just, it's such an incredible little cherry on top of the character to show us that because she is a real person. She's not, she's not a caricature. You know, me and me and Greg Kleinschmidt of um, seen and heard and, and, and the Arroyo film club, we talked about this um, on a podcast episode we did way, way, way back. And he brought up the character in Detour as like the quintessential femme fatale. Um, and I keep coming back to the the female character in Detour, who's just like who's just like pure evil. You know what I mean? And it's like ludicrously evil. Like by the end, she's like snarling on the ground, like, you know, like, I'll kill you. Like, it's just like so over the top. That's just what's so awesome about this character is it's so multifaceted, so dynamic. Yeah. And that that last moment, like, just pulls open this tiny little gap where you look inside and see a real person there. You, you almost like see this little girl standing there, saying, "Oh God, what have I done?" And it's just like it's just heartbreaking. You know what I mean? Like she did. It didn't have to be this way, Felicia. It didn't have to go down like this. I know, right? And I think those are all such great points. 
And I think for me, upon another rewatch was that if she was this sociopath who truly didn't care about anyone but herself, she would have shot him in the back and be done with it. And she doesn't. She lets him turn around. The only reason why it got to this is because she's backed into a corner that she cannot get out of. So this is her only way out. And it ends up, you know, fatally for her as well. Yeah. Yeah. And what a further indictment of Walter Neff that after she does that, he then holds her, takes the gun from her hand and says, goodbye, baby, and shoots her twice in the gut at point blank range. I mean, what a fucking piece of shit. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I agree. I had forgotten there was the second shot. And I was like, oh, wow, that seems to be a bit overkill. There seems to be a lot of anger in that second shot. That definitely was unnecessary. The first one would have killed her. Yeah, he's such a fucking psycho, too. I mean, the way he's toying with her in that scene. And like, yeah, there's an expository element. But again, Wilder and Chandler, they're taking exposition and putting it into like real life. He's playing with her like a cat playing with its food. You know what I mean? Like he's walking behind her chair, putting his hands over her head because he's going to strangle her. He doesn't have a weapon on him. He's going to fucking kill her with his bare fucking hands. And he's putting his hands on the back of the chair and he says, what do you think's going to happen? I mean, terrifying, like serial killer type shit that he's doing. And like, I mean, just so many wonderful delicious complexities to this story of who's the bad guy who's yes. the good guy who's why are yeah. we rooting for this person and what does that say about us oh just excellent art <laughs> i agree it's just a beautiful and dark and twisted story but done so deliciously if if you can describe a film that way that's about murder <laughs> For someone, if you haven't seen this film in a while, I highly recommend rewatching it because I think it just gets better upon rewatch. And I'm sure you agree, obviously, since you've seen it more than I have. Yeah, yeah. And and more so than the other quote unquote like timeless dark classics of this era. I think there is the I, I think there is more depth here than Maltese Falcon. There is more depth here than Casablanca. Which I both love and have and will rewatch many, many, many times. Have rewatched many times and will rewatch many more times. Those are the two kind of like that really pop into my head is these sort of like early forties, or early to mid forties wartime, you know, noirs slash romances. Um, and uh, this one, I, I I really think there is something here that is truly extraordinary. I agree. Also, that ties in nicely to the last segment that I have for the segment that currently I'm calling end credits subject to change. <laughs> but right now it's end credits. I have a couple questions that I ask each guest. First question is, if someone comes up to you and says, Hey, Aaron, I've never seen a Billy Wilder film before. Where do I start? What film do you recommend to them? Is it Double Indemnity? If so, why? If it's not Double Indemnity, what film is it? Well, uh, it's not Double Indemnity. I don't think that at its core, what makes this so special is just Wilder. I think that this is actually more of a Raymond Chandler film than a Billy Wilder film. And if you like are interested in reading the novels of Raymond Chandler, I would highly recommend you watch Double Indemnity first because it will set the mood that, that can then get you through some of the kind of confusing moments of his novels where you're not sure what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. For Billy Wilder, I would I would want to start with something. I would probably say like watch The Apartment. Um, you know, I think that that movie, okay. uh, you know, that movie 
has many other refined elements of this film in that, but the dial of love and comedy is turned up and the darkness is turned down, but it's still very present. I mean, the amount of that, I mean, the, the, the through line of suicide in that movie is, is really shocking and, and, and wonderful in that it, it, it juxtaposes to the, the comedy. So, so nicely. Um, and I think that that movie kind of has, cause most Billy Wilder films to me feel like sort of like warm sweater movies, you know, like they, they envelop you in a big hug and that movie like does it better mm-hmm. than any others. Um, and also, you know, I mean, an- incredible performances, Jacqueline and Shirley McLean and Fred McMurray. So I'd, I'd probably go with that one, or I would potentially go with a foreign affair, uh, which is another favorite of mine, like really allows Billy to kind of like talk a little bit of like, I mean, he's not doing it directly, but he's, you know, he's, he's here. He is a, you know, a a refugee Jewish immigrant, you know, escaped the Nazis going back to Germany and having this incredible perspective on sort of where he came from. So I'd probably go with those two movies because I think double indemnity at its core is a Chandler. film. I agree. And those are both really interesting choices. Why I love asking this question is because everyone has, most people have different responses, uh, but I always love to hear why and what would be the reason why they would want someone to start with that. I also agree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't choose double indemnity just because I think if this is your first, you might get an impression of the rest of his body of work, which isn't as similar as this story-wise. Um, so I wouldn't want to give people a certain impression, but I think it's one that you would definitely, you would get around to anyway at some point if you're interested in his style of writing. What would you pick as the movie you would recommend? Mine is Sunset Boulevard. It's an easy gateway film for Wilder and just in general. It's just such an easy watch and it gives you those elements from basically everything else he's done. There's a little droplets of all of that in this that film. Yeah, that's a great choice. I probably should have said that. Honestly, it did not pop into my head for some reason. <laughs> so. No, but that's that's great. That's that's why it should, that's why I want to ask everyone the question. Last question: You're building a double bill, either for yourself or someone else. What film are you pairing double indemnity with? And it doesn't need to be a Billy Wilder film. Yes. So I I thought a lot about this. Um, <laughs> I definitely wanted to pair it with like another noir uh, in some sense, but um, and sort of like a lover's murder. Uh, type movie. So I thought about, uh, I kind of went through decades. So I was like, well, maybe Badlands would be really cool because like you're getting out of LA, you're getting this like couple lovers murder sort of spree, whatever commenting, uh, and it would juxtapose nicely. But, you know, ultimately I I said, I didn't go with that one. I then thought about, you know, maybe you keep it in Los Angeles. You do something like Mulholland Drive uh, which could be a really interesting double bill that then like is also like commenting on the era that produced double indemnity and is like it would be this juxtaposition. But I ultimately came down to how what we talked about, which is like I would love to see a, a, a the story told from Phyllis's perspective. Um, and I would love this like a, a feminine a female focused version of the story. And so I'm gonna pair this with on my double bill uh, with Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden, which is pr- one of my favorite movies of the last ten years. And um, I think it will have it has all the twists and turns of double indemnity. The writing is as tight, but you get these incredible uh, female characters with this 
wonderful, you know, lesbian love crime story built in. And um, yeah, so that, yeah, that's my pick. Oh, wow. Those are all great choices. And I thought of the other two myself, but The Handmaiden, I hadn't thought of. And I think that's such an interesting, that would make a great double bill. (laughs) Someone needs to screen that. Uh, Great, great, great choice. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to let that sit because I wasn't thinking about that at all. That's great. The, the one that I paired was also a female led one. And I wanted, I kept it. It ends up being something that was released the, set, <laughs> the exact same year, which is just by accident. So my film is Phantom Lady. It's by Robert Seedmack. And it's kind of the opposite where the woman is trying to help prove that her boss didn't murder his wife. So she kind of is the detective. Everything unfolds. Did he do it? Did he not? Why is she protecting him? And it's told from her perspective. It's actually probably my favorite noir. And I think it would make an interesting compare and contrast to Walter Neff being the lead. And then you have a woman who is kind of narrating her process it's kept in the same era i think if you're looking for something like a nora double bill that's what i would recommend that's awesome i haven't seen that one um i've i've it's come across like on lists but once again felicia just uh you know (laughs) this is pulling out titles left and right of of things that i haven't seen so i gotta watch that as fast as possible i don't know why i love that film so much there's just so many interesting scenes and it's kind of like a there's nothing really special about the story but something about it just is always on my mind like i think about it so often and you said it's the same year as double indemnity it's a 1944 film as well. yeah 44 Okay. Well, thank you so much, Aaron. This is very informative. You came through with so much great info. I really appreciate your expertise and your passion about Double Indemnity. You know, this is a film that people talk about a lot, but in my opinion, maybe not enough. I really appreciate you coming on. It's easy to get seduced by the the style of this film and to just see the style as a, as a, as a, yeah, it's just like the on it as like a surface level presentation. And what is I is so great is that this is a film where form and and substance have come together. Um, and so yeah, it was a joy to talk to you, and, and I'm so happy to be on your podcast. I'm so happy that you're doing this podcast, and just congratulations. It's an honor to be a guest, and uh, thank you for having me. No, thank you, and I hope if you enjoyed your time, you'll come back in the future. Oh, hell, because yeah. I would love to have you. Because there's so many directors we need to talk about. Oh, Felicia, anytime you 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 tell me the director, I'm there. <laughs> Okay, I'm holding you to that. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Arroyo Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney, intro music by Lamar Walker, and additional help from Dara McGrath. If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And stay tuned for our next episode on The Lost Weekend.